So we're doing this series called Hijacked, and the whole idea behind it is the concept of worldview. And Matt's talked about it, um, Dave has talked about what a worldview is. I like to think of it sometimes as like my glasses. Because through these lenses, I can visually see the world around me clearly. A worldview is a lens through which we see reality, and we all have one. And they deal with the bigger questions of life, things like origin, where do we come from, meaning, morality, what's right and what's wrong, how do we determine it, is there a way to determine right and wrong, destiny, what happens to us after we're, after we're gone. That's a worldview, and we all have one. Whether we know it or not, whether we think about it or not, if, if somebody asks, you know, what's your purpose in life, what's your meaning, and your answer is, I don't know, that's an answer. Not a good answer, but it's an answer. And here at Blessed Hope, we, we obviously try to introduce and encourage and strengthen a Christian worldview. And this whole series of hijacked has to do with this issue of how so many different worldviews can kind of come in and change or try to warp our hearts and minds about what the Christian worldview is. So, for example, and like I say, our worldview is how we, how we view reality. And if it's wrong, then it's going to affect how we, how we go through life. Matt talked about universalism a while ago. And so if you're, say, a Christian who has a Christian worldview who starts to maybe start accepting this idea of universalism, you might have a think, the mindset of, well, I believe Jesus died. He died for the sins of everyone. And so when we die, we all go to heaven. That's universalism, that everybody goes to heaven at the end. And that's a nice thought, but that means you get to spend time with Hitler and Stalin because we're all going there. It's all good. And if that's your thinking, if that's what universalism, what's that say about justice or the concept of justice? As you go through life, how do you look at things like this? What's it say about your understanding what God's justice and mercy is? So that's why things like hey, this series has been so important. And this hit me with particular force earlier this summer when I had the opportunity to go to New York. I'd never been there before. And New York was almost exactly what I thought it would be, just skyscraper. We were in Manhattan most of the time, and it was just skyscrapers as far as you could see. But the thing that shocked me, just absolutely blew my mind, was when you get to downtown Manhattan, the number of churches, Christian churches, everywhere, I mean, everywhere. We went, you'd go to Wall Street, there was a church right around the corner. Alexander Hamilton's buried there. Made my kids sing that song a lot. Um, you go to the Lego building, you come outside, there's a Christian church. You go to the Nike building, go outside, there's a Christian church. Rockefeller Plaza, beautiful Christian church. Everywhere. I, I just could not get my brain wrapped around that. And... As a Midwesterner, I'd always known that, that early in, in the life of America, there was a strong Christian worldview at that time. To give you an idea of what it was like, Harvard College, Ivy League College, probably the biggest in the United States, the most prestigious, possibly one of the most prestigious in the whole world, 
was founded in this early birth of our nation. And the motto of Harvard College was for Christ in the church. If you were to go to Harvard today as a professing Christian, your worldview as a Christian would not so much be challenged as probably openly attacked and mocked. And so as I'm walking around New York and seeing this, all I could think about is what happened? You know, what, what, what has happened that we seem to have an attitude now where it's really a secular worldview, where we've just got an idea that, look, if you want to be a Christian, like Matt was talking about, if you want to be a Christian, that's fine. Be a Christian in name only. Do it at home. Don't do it out. But you don't, it doesn't have any place in the public sphere, in the workplace, or anything else. Just keep it to yourself so you can be a Christian in name only. But again, if that's the worldview, then who's determining right and wrong? The most powerful might makes right? Who determines our laws? Is there anybody that's going... Do you see where how this has become such an important issue and why we're talking about this? It's not just for our own hearts and minds, but how culture can be changed. And uh, what I wondered then as I was looking at all this is what happened? Why did things change? And what, what's been the big issue? And I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but one thing that I keep thinking about is I keep going back to the creation narrative that we find in Scripture, in John and Genesis. And the reason I think that's the one area where they really want to hit is because if there is a creator, then things such as good and evil, morality and that, or something, if that doesn't exist, then morality is what we decide to make of it. So I can do something and say it's right, Matt may say it's wrong, well, who's going to decide that? And there's an idea that there's a lot of freedom, it's not a correct idea, but there's a freedom if we can get rid of this idea that God exists, because then we get to determine our own destiny. So what I wanted to do this morning was spend a little bit of time on the creation narratives and talk about it from the Christian worldview, most of us are fairly aware of it, but maybe see some things that, that bring some things to light that, that hopefully will be encouraging and helpful for you. I'm going to start in John chapter 1. Uh, I've got an NIV, so if you have a different version, it will sound a little different. But uh, <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, with in, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then the parallel passage, obviously, as we know, is in Genesis, and I want to read some verses in there as well. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, 
and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then dropping down the chapter a ways down to 26. Then God said, let, me, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31, God saw that all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So, John's gospel kind of introduces us to this incredible concept of God the Word. And the first sentence is fairly simple to understand, but the more you look into it, the more profound and deep it gets. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And immediately, it should raise an immediate question. Now, wait a minute. If the Word is God and with God at the same time, how can God be with God? And this introduces us to this concept of the nature of God as a fellowship. Some people might try to argue that the Trinity is some sort of Christian formulation of doctrine, and it isn't. The, Christ, the Trinity is how God has revealed himself to be, a Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even though the text does not use the word Trinity, it's a perfectly reasonable description of what the text actually says. God is a fellowship. That is, within himself, he experiences relationship. To put it crudely, God wasn't hard up for somebody to talk to, so he created some human beings on earth so he wouldn't be lonely anymore. God is in himself capable of relationship, and we can only understand this at a basic lower level. A husband and wife become one flesh, as Genesis tells us, so there's a oneness with two persons. And that's kind of an idea, a faint idea, of what it means about this idea of the nature of God as a fellowship. But God here in John's gospel, specifically, this, the particular slant here is God the Word. And of course, this was written in Greek, and the word, in the Greek word for word is logos, or logos. I'm not, I never did really figure out how that's pronounced, but you get the idea. But it's where we get the word logic. And this word already had meaning back then. The Greeks used it in their philosophy as the rational principle behind the universe. The word logos was used to describe inner thought, reason, even science itself. But what John does here is he takes that word and gives it a completely new meaning. God the word. And of course, in the Old Testament, you have this sort of concept throughout the Old Testament. We read one of it in Genesis. And God said. 
And we see throughout, like I say, the Old Testament where it says this. For example, you have Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Verse 9, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And at first it may seem somewhat simple, but the more you think about it, the more, again, it, it, the deeper it gets. What does it mean when we utter the phrase, and God said? I'm kind of a pathetic guy in some ways. I don't watch a lot of sports and stuff like that, but sometimes I'll get on YouTube and listen to debates. Not political debates, I'm not insane, but I do like listening to different debates, and I like hearing, you know, scientists debate the existence of God, things of that nature. I, I just enjoy these sort of things, I'm sorry. But um, there was one in which these two scientists were arguing back and forth. One was coming from a Christian worldview, the other one was coming from an atheist worldview. And the Christian was trying to talk to this guy, and at one point he made the statement, you know, in Scripture where it says, and God said, let there be light. And the atheist had the, always had the opinion that, that Christians were very naive if they believed the Bible. And when this guy said, and God said, let there be light, he started to laugh and said, you're as naive as anybody I've ever met. Are you meaning to tell me that God has a voice box and lungs like we've got and therefore has, can speak? That can make you think a little bit. Because when we think of that, we think of speech with a voice box and lungs and all of that. And if God is spirit, what does it mean to speak? And when we say the thing, something like that Jesus is the word, does that mean he's a collection of letters in an alphabet? No. So we don't take scripture literally then, do we? Now, I can get in trouble here, so let me back up a little bit. You say, no, it's not letters in an alphabet. It's a word that you speak, but we've already decided there were no lung voices and lungs back then, so what's going on? And what we're dealing with here is a metaphor, and we have to be very careful about how we understand these things, even though some of us pretty much know it intuitively. Matt talked about this a while ago. When we say, when Jesus said, I am the door, would anybody think to ask what kind of wood he was made out of? Of course not. So he's not a literal door. Well, just a minute. No, he's not a literal door in that he's, a, he's made out of wood, but he is a real door in that through him you have a spiritual access to God. It's real, isn't it? See, sometimes we have some problems when it comes to the scriptures. We sometimes fail to make a very simple distinction even though we understand it intuitively. Just because a metaphor is being used, it doesn't mean that what's being talked about is not real. So Jesus isn't a literal door in that he's made out of wood, but there really is a spiritual experience that through him you can come to the Father. And what I'm trying to say is sometimes the word literal is not always the most helpful word in the world. Somebody will ask me, do you take this scriptures literally? Yes, at the level in which it's intended. But we can start seeing pretty quickly that there are a lot of different levels. So God is the word. 
And we have various notions of word, speech, letters, information, uh, information, and all the rest of it, expression, etc., etc. And all of these concepts help give us a faint notion of what's being said, because after all, we learn later that Jesus is the word. He had a voice. He has a voice box and lungs. We learn later in Scripture that he claimed to be the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and every letter in between. What's it saying? That he's literally those letters? No. It's saying that he is ultimately the alphabet through which meaning itself is found. What what a colossal claim that is. And if we can encourage our own hearts and minds to some of the bigness of these concepts and to recognize that this is our Lord, the Word become human. So we are told that the Word was already there in the beginning, which is telling us two things, that there was a beginning to space, time, and the universe. And it's telling us another thing, that the Word was already there. And so if we're going to ask that ancient philosopher's question, why is there something rather than nothing? The answer isn't going to be science. Science didn't put the universe there. God put the universe there. And we are told that all things were made through him. Again, getting back to that same debate, actually the atheist's guy, the name was uh, Peter Atkins. Very intelligent, very good scientist, but he had an atheistic worldview And the Christian asked him, the Christian scientist said, you know, Peter, what do you think created the universe? And he said, mathematics. And at this time, it was the Christian's turn to laugh, and he said, said, well, what are you laughing at? He said, well, (laughs) I wish it was really like that. You know, two plus two equals four, but that never sum never created four dollars in my pocket. Did it put it in yours? Mathematics doesn't create anything. It's a very foolish mistake, but sometimes some of the best minds in the world make it. Paul Davis talks about a clever clever set of laws creating the universe. Stephen Hawking, possibly the most famous scientist of our time, makes the argument that if you have a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Laws don't make anything. We know this from middle school. Laws describe what's there. That's what they do. They don't produce it. Newton's law of motion never got a football thrown across a football field in the entire history of the universe. But it will describe the motion when someone's there to give it a throw. No, all things were made by him. But as I understand it, that's not exactly how it's translated. From what I understand, the translation is that all things came to be through him. And while without him, nothing came to be that came to be. Now, of course, that means that all things were made by him, but that tends to kind of miss the huge debate that was going on in the ancient world. There are things that come to be. That means they are secondary. They are not primary. And the big question then, and still is today, is there anything eternal that didn't come to be? 
And there is, according to John, the Word did not come to be. The Word already was. So what John is doing, to put it in a more contemporary setting, is answering the question that I suppose a lot of you have been asked. I've been asked this numerous times. Who created the Creator? Who created God? You believe God created you? Okay, who created God? Have you ever heard that? I've heard it a few times, and I've heard this argument time and time again in the debates I've seen. And, the mo- and that really begs the question that's at the heart of what John's talking about. Is there anything eternal that didn't come to be? And we usually know that created gods, you know, who created God, we usually know that those are a delusion. We usually call them idols. So the word, what John is saying, is that the word didn't come to be, but the universe did come to be. Mass energy came to be. That means these things are secondary. They're not primary. And what John is doing us is he's basically telling us the nature of ultimate reality. And that's where the worldview of Christianity really runs up against so many others. Because for many people, mass energy and the universe is ultimate reality. And they try to frame this in a scientific type of argument. And the problem with that is it has nothing to do with science. For example, a guy by the name of William Phillips. He won the Nobel Prize for Physics a few years ago. He's a Christian. Another guy by the name of Peter Higgs, also a physicist, who also won the, the Nobel Prize. He's an atheist. What separates these two men is not their science. It's their worldview. And the universe, according to the naturalists and the secularists, is ultimate reality. But ultimate reality, according to John, is not the universe, it's God. And that's what the battle is in our society today. And if you are ever, by the way, if you're ever asked that question, who created God? I, had, I heard a really good response to this. Richard Dawkins, a guy that wrote The God Delusion, one of the more famous atheists, threw this at, at this one, at a guy by the name of John Lennox who was debating him. And so John Lennox went into this whole thing about how, you know, God is eternal and there is no creating of God. But he says, as a quid pro quo, let me ask you the same question. You think the universe created you. Who created you? Your creator. He didn't like that question very much. He didn't answer it either. But I think it's interesting that the Bible, which says relatively little about the origins of things, I mean, if I wrote the Bible, I'd, wouldn't you like to know more about how it was done? But what it says relatively little, what little bit it does say seems to concentrate on this concept of word. And that really corresponds with all of our intuition. You have, because it goes along with science, you have science putting down laws in nature, describing reality in written form and symbolism and mathematical equation. Laws which describe, describe 
regularity and reality. The idea that all things came to be through the word is not some silly primitive notion. It fits perfectly with everything that we've learned from science. John also says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So what's that saying about this idea of the light of men? Because we're not talking about the life of the Lord Jesus. He was the light of the world, and that was, that's extremely important, but we haven't reached the point of incarnation. We're talking about creation. In him was life, and that life was the life, light of men. What does that mean? To me, I think it means it's a witness to God. And Paul, in Romans 1, tells us that God in his existence and power are detectable in the things that are made. And what I think is what is being hinted here in John's Gospel is that physical life in all of its forms, plant life, animal life, and all in ultimately, above all, human life, is a light pointing in one direction. Pointing to the genius of the word who is responsible, ultimately, for its existence. And according to Paul, that light is so powerful that people are going to be without excuse if they ignore it. So what I want to do now is just move over to Genesis a little bit and unpack what it's trying to say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a few seconds to kind of go a little bit of off topic because this is something I remember a long time ago before I met my wife or anything. I remember being at a wedding where the pastor said, you know, was, he was standing before the couple and he said, you know, in the beginning, God. And he just stopped right there. And he said, John, Sally, today you're going to be making a new beginning. Just remember, in the beginning, God. And I've, that's always hit me. I mean, you're moving to a job, or you're leaving a job, and you're going to be starting a new beginning. In the beginning, God. And maybe by God's grace, you've been given the gift of children, and they're going to start a new beginning. In the beginning, God. I don't know, to me, I just find that to be awesome because it, it's a simple concept, but it's just knowing this knowledge that there was beginning and God was in at it at the biggest sense of all, orchestrating and putting it all together. And if you take nothing else away from what I'm talking about now, it's worth taking that much away because every day is a new beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some people will ask, you know, how is it that you can square Scripture versus the record of science? And one little, another little aside, and then I'll actually get to my point, I want to make that I think is worth mentioning, is there was a, a doctor by the name of Andrew Parker. Again, I'm not going to go into his credentials, but he has a lot. And his... His focus of his studies are on light-emitting creatures, marine life that emit light. And he was talking about 
you know, biology and the creation of th and how things came about and, every day and everything. And one day you're starting to give a lecture and talking about this concept of, of light and how it was important from his studies on how biology and how things moved along. And finally there was a reporter in the back that says, you know, you sound like Genesis. And he said, Gen Genesis what? I don't, what are you talking about? He says, Genesis, you know, the Bible. Let there be light. Well, he didn't know what he was talking about, so he went and got himself a Bible. And he started to read it. And he couldn't let it go. Night after night, he spent time in page one of the Bible. And he started doing research. Eventually, he ended up publishing a book called The Genesis Enigma. And in that, the synopsis goes roughly like this. He basically says, look, I'm not a, a religious man myself right now. It's not something I'm interested in. But he says, you know, I have discovered, though, in my studies, the most remarkable correlation between the beginnings of life in history as I see it and what Genesis actually says. And he goes on to say that the Hebrew writer could not have possibly known how this, how this was so important, how light was important, marine life and everything. And he got it in the right order. He says, that's not possible. And then he finishes off with saying, could this be evidence for the existence of God? Needless to say, it was kind of a big hit in the academic world because it is so rare to have somebody come at raw at it without a speck of Christian belief and seeing the correlations on how things were, came about. And I, like I say, that's sort of a side note, I think is, is just, I just thought I'd throw it out there. But in what little bit of time left, I want to talk a little bit about what Genesis says because I know we're very familiar with it, but you notice that God, cre it starts out with God created the heavens and earth, and then there goes a sequence of created acts. So God didn't create everything all at once. There was a sequence of created acts that stopped because God rested on the seventh day. Now, of course, God hasn't stopped working when it comes to, the, as our Lord has pointed out, when it comes to redemption and <clears throat> things of that nation, nature, but the creation narrative has stopped. And each step of creation involved God speaking, and God said. That's fairly obvious. But you're going to notice that there were two days in which God spoke more than once. He spoke more than once on day three, and the distinction being made there is between earth and sea and plant life possibly the distinction between the inorganic material and organic material. And then on the sixth day, he speaks more than a couple of times, and the distinction being made there is between animal and human. Now, many scientists will argue and believe, you know, in a one big, you know, you might call it Big Bang or whatever, that started things and then evolution took place and all of that. But what Genesis seems to suggest here is that there were more than one singular, there, there was not one singularity, that there were several. And the question to ask is, is it possible to go from inorganic life, inorganic material to life without, and God said, 
Is it possible to go from animal life to human life without and God said? So it's like you have this system, and at intervals, something is injected into it from the outside, and what apparently seems to be injected from the outside is the exact opposite of a mindless, unguided, random process. It's and God said. So if you have this sequence of events, and the sequence has a goal, what's the goal? Let us make man in our own image. Now this is a huge topic, but let's just try to take a moment and see what this is being said. You see steps, you see days, you see numbers, and you think, where are they going? It's clear that they're going toward human being. Let us make man in our own image. The universe in all of its wonder and glory and beauty from the microscopic to the gigantic big picture of things, all of that is not made in God's image, is it? It shows his glory, but it's not made in his image. You are. And that should bring us into the realm of values. You are made in God's image. The sun is a gigantic, beautiful thing out there, and they've even made telescopes now where you can look directly at it, and you can see the flames shooting sometimes literally a million miles into outer space, but the poor thing, it doesn't have a brain in its old head. I know it's up there. It doesn't know I'm down here. I'm made in God's image. So are you. That means you're more important than the sun, doesn't it? It's only the light up in the sky. But it's even more important than that. Did you notice my emphasis in the reading? And God said, let there be. And God said, and God said, and God said. But then you come to something amazing. In verse 28, it says, and God said to them. Being made in the image of God means you can understand his speech. He can talk to you. Why? Because you were made that way. To be able to receive his speech and to talk to him. Imagine that. The speech of the one who spoke and invented the Adam. Who invented life. And now he wants to talk to us. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? Just a simple phrase in the first chapter of the Bible. God said to them. I mean, what is a human being? In the beginning was the Word, already was. All things came to be through him, the universe came to be, but then we come to something that really defies all description. The Word, who never came to be, came to be human. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. what a creature a human is because God was willing to become one. Do you believe it? This world, our world needs to hear this, ladies and gentlemen, with its millions of 
incinerated creatures who bear his image. And so why did the word become flesh? And I'll get this all probably close things up here. Because if in the first chapter of Genesis we hear about the word in relation to creation and God said, in the second and third chapter we get to see what it means in relation to being a moral being. God speaks and he creates. And then God speaks to them. But then they found out there's another voice in the universe that speaks to them. And the serpent said, has God really said? The first attack on humanity had to do with the veracity of God speaking. And if that is true, then it's pretty obvious to me that that's going to be the very heart of the attack right through history. And it's no wonder the battle, century after century, always seems to focus around the authority and the the authenticity of the scripture. Has God said this? Has he? Nonsense, says universalism, secularism, naturalism, atheism. It's all a delusion. But God had said, and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But how did they know that they were going to die? simply because God said so. That's why. Will you trust God's word? Can we have the uh, praise team come forward? My prayer is, and what I, you know, the purpose of all this is we look at universalism and how things have been hijacked. My prayer is that God would encourage us. Because we all know what ended up happening, Right? They ended up listening to the voice of the creature rather than the voice of the creator. And uh, they wandered out of paradise with it being closed to them and they turned this world into a desert. And the way back was going to be long. It was going to involve the one who had spoken. The one who didn't come to be but eternally is, it was going to involve him coming to be flesh and dwelling among us. And so said John, we beheld his glory. And he did more than just behold his glory. He was one who saw the word incarnate give his life on a cross to bring men and women back to God and to his word. May God help us to be loyal ladies and gentlemen, and may his word be so real in our hearts, authenticating itself through all the evidences, yes, but in the end, authenticating himself through his word, which we find living in scripture, to give us the courage to stand in a sometimes very hostile environment that is desperate to know that God is there, and he is not silent.